So tonight we will continue our exploration of the factors of awakening uh, by continuing on to the energizing factors of awakening. In Western Buddhism, we tend to put a lot of emphasis on acceptance of whatever arises in our practice. And this is an important part of practice, this non-judgmental awareness of whatever is arising, whatever states or experiences that are arising. Not splitting off what we feel is unacceptable, but rather embracing you could say, the whole human catastrophe. And side by side with this truth of the importance of acceptance is also the truth that there are wholesome states of mind and there are unwholesome states of mind. And that it's a matter of wisdom to encourage the growth of wholesome states of mind and to discourage the growth, the rising and growth of unwholesome states of mind. So it's skillful. It's skillful to encourage the strengthening of the neuronal connections in the mind that um, lead to wholesome states of mind arising and continuing. You could say that we'd like them more and more to become our default setting in the mind. And sometimes there may be some sense that there's a contradiction between this acceptance of all the experience that arises and this teaching that there are wholesome and beneficial states of mind and there are unwholesome and unbeneficial states of mind. Or, or we may fear that when we talk about encouraging wholesome states of mind and discouraging unwholesome states of mind, we may have this fear that, that we will fall into striving for the wholesome states and rejecting somehow as bad the unwholesome states. So in this way, sometimes folks can wonder at this apparent contradiction between these two ways of looking at things. It can be important to understand that there isn't actually a contradiction between these two. Mindfulness includes this element of acceptance of the way things are in the moment. And it also has, as we talked last week, it also has this intelligence to know what is wholesome and what is not wholesome, what's beneficial or skillful and what's unbeneficial not skillful, whatever words work best for you. So it's skillful to cultivate the wholesome and discourage the unwholesome, even while we're also accepting the truth of our experience in the moment, no matter what that experience is. It's also true that through the development of the wholesome factors of mind or wholesome mind states we'll be talking about. That we develop a certain strength of heart and mind that gives us the strength to uh, accept what arises or to accept life as it is or to face the whole uh, range of this 
human experience. It gives us the strength to face our demons. It gives us the strength to face suffering in a way that we don't wallow in it that's not of any benefit to us. So these wholesome states of mind are really important in our practice. We need them. We need them to develop the deepest understanding. This spiritual path is at times quite challenging, especially if our intention is awakening. I read somewhere, insight is comforting. Deep insight is challenging, sometimes terrifying. If we're talking about practicing for liberation, we're talking about shaking things up a bit. And in order to be able to do that, we need the strength of these factors of awakening. We need the strength of wholesome mind states. So last week we started our survey of the seven factors of awakening with mindfulness, the the kingpin, the central quality. These are seven of the most wholesome mind states, beautiful mind states, the real thing, what we need on this path for awakening, what we need for traveling this path that will satisfy our deepest yearning of heart and mind. So we talked about the power of mindfulness to plumb the depths of experience and to develop wisdom and insight And we talked about its protective qualities, its intelligence and ability to distinguish between wholesome and unwholesome and how it allows us to hone our inner moral conscience and protects us from suffering, actions that cause suffering. So today we'll move on to the next three factors, which are the energizing factors. So there's a three energizing factors, and then there's the three calming factors, which I'll talk about next week. And our practice, then, is a lot about balancing the energizing factors and the calming factors. We need both of them. The energizing factors are investigation, energy or effort, and joyous interest or rapture. These three qualities counteract boredom and dullness in the mind, in the heart. And they nourish curiosity and energy and enthusiasm on our spiritual path. They're taught in a certain order as each uh, one strengthens the next one or is a proximate cause for the next one to arise. So we'll talk about that too. And we'll talk, as we mentioned last week, about how in the Satipatthana Sutra we're given four tasks for each of these qualities. And the four tasks are to notice when it's present, notice when it's absent, notice what causes it to arise, and notice what helps it to continue and strengthen. 
I don't want you to worry too much about trying to remember everything I say about each of these factors. However, if you notice that one of these factors is not your strength, then you may want to pay attention specifically or closer attention to that one and the suggestions about how it can be strengthened. So the first one is Dhamma-bichaya, which is the investigation of states or the investigation of the truth. This quality manifests as an interest in deeply understanding the truth about life. It manifests as this quality of investigation that leads to the clearing of delusion, leads to the growth of wisdom. Dhamma-vichaya has the function to illuminate the object of our mindfulness or to illuminate the nature of what is happening in our minds. So it's said to be like a lamp shines a light on what's happening. It illuminates the nature of all physical and mental phenomena. So it illuminates the three characteristics of life and the four noble truths and the understanding of nama rupa, mental and physical phenomena. How do we know this factor is present? So when do we notice it present in the mind? Perhaps it manifests as a flavor of curiosity in the mind, a a wish to know the truth of things. An open-hearted curiosity, a type of curiosity that is willing to not know, to explore. In that sense, it would be a kind of curiosity absent of striving or expectation. That's the open-heartedness of it. Rumi says, sell your cleverness and purchase bewilderment. Not bewilderment in the sense of being confused, but in the sense of being willing to not know. Sometimes we're way too clever. We know too much about how things are. Investigation is that quality that's willing to suspend some of that and to look more deeply, look more closely. What is the nature of this life? In a uh, book called 108 Zen Stories, uh, edited by Sean Murphy, here's a story. After several years of practice, a student came to Katagiri Roshi saying, I used to think I knew what you were saying in your lectures, but lately I just don't understand at all. A grin spread over his teacher's features. Finally, Katagiri Katagiri said, finally you're getting somewhere. (laughs) This is a kind of um, letting go of what we know and then there's room to to learn something new. How would we know that this uh, quality of investigation is absent? One One 
way maybe when we're experiencing a lot of resistance in our practice. Resistance is shrinking back from truth. It happens to all of us. It happens a lot to all of us, this um, not really not wanting to know the truth of things. Perhaps being more interested in being comfortable than in knowing the truth. It can be helpful to illuminate that when it's happening. We all have this deep yearning for the truth or we wouldn't be here. And yet side by side with that, we have this resistance to the truth, this ambivalence. We're not sure how much we really want to know. Put rather humorously by Jane Wagner, Lily uh, Tomlin's partner and writer. I made some studies, and reality is a leading cause of stress amongst those in touch with it. I can take it in small doses, but as a lifestyle, I found it too confining. Sometimes uh, I would call that resistance, and sometimes uh, we all have a little bit of that within us. So when there is resistance or lack of investigation in our practice, how can we encourage it to arise? In the sutras, approximate cause for all of the factors of awakening to rise is frequently giving careful attention. So basically, that's the all-purpose proximate cause, if you want to remember one, frequently giving careful attention. So basically paying close and careful attention to what is arising in the body, mind, and heart in a continuous manner. This is what causes all of the factors of awakening to ripen. So returning over and over again to paying close attention to what's predominant, what's coming up, what's arising. And then the commentaries also list a number of uh, proximate causes for each factor of awakening. And some of them we can relate to. Some of them might not really do it for us. Um, We can really explore for ourselves what encourages these wholesome mind states. And I will also give some some of the commentaries uh, suggestions and some of my own for each one. For the factor of awakening or the bojenga of investigation, I found this one very interesting in the commentaries. It said that one of the proximate causes is uh, keeping things clean, (laughs) having clean surroundings and clean body, clean mind. I know that Upandita always encourages people to have a, a clean room. We can feel this for ourselves if our rooms or our houses are very cluttered or 
um, not kept clean, it does affect the state of the mind and heart. It's like the clutter around us can influence the mind to feel cluttered. And when things are cleaner and more orderly, we can feel that it helps the mind and heart to be sharper. So we're looking for for this quality of investigation. We're looking for what helps the mind to be a little sharper, more interested, able to get closer to what's happening. For all of the Bojangas are the factors of awakening for all of them. It's suggested that we associate with people who have this quality and not associate so much with people who don't have it. So hanging out with those who have the quality or are interested in developing the quality. And this can be why Sangha can be so important for us. It shows how interconnected we are and how we're influenced by each other. It's kind of like, I think of it sometimes as like when we're teenagers and our parents worry about who we're hanging out with because they know that we're going to be influenced by them. We're going to pick up uh, habits from them, ways of being. And so with our, our spiritual life, we try to to find others who are interested in this qualities, these qualities, or have developed these qualities, and hang out with them. That's why doing a retreat so great. We're all here together, wishing to explore the truth. We affect each other in a very positive way. Another proximate cause for this bojanga is uh, listening to the Dharma, asking questions, and reflecting on the Dharma. So coming to Dharma talks helps this quality, or reading good Dharma books can encourage this quality of investigation. We also have to be careful to have the right balance with this because too much speculation about the Dharma, too much thinking about the Dharma, perhaps even too much input uh, in books or too many talks can take us away from the real investigation of our moment-to-moment experience. It can't substitute for that. It can encourage us to look more deeply, but we need to have the right balance. Sometimes we get seduced by thinking about the Dharma, reflecting on the Dharma, especially when our practice is going well, this can happen. And um, we get very excited about our Dharma thoughts. They, they seem so helpful, and um, they can be a little bit, but then they, they get into just papancha, right? They start rolling, and, um, and uh, then they actually take us away from investigation. We're once again lost in the stories and the concepts of the mind. And so we have to watch out for too much reflection on the Dharma and just come back to simplicity, just hear what's happening in the moment.
it's said that having also the right balance of energy and concentration helps with this, this strengthen this quality of investigation. If we have too much energy, uh, the mind is very restless and it can't really penetrate into what's happening. It skitters around too much. If we have too much concentration, the mind gets, uh, can get lazy sometimes or kind of dull sometimes, what we have sometimes call sinking mind. It's not so unpleasant, but, but there isn't any, enough crispness or clarity about what's happening. So we need the right balance of energy and concentration to, to investigate. Spiritual urgency can also be a cause of strengthening this factor of investigation. What wakes us up to the importance of the development of wisdom, of our search for the truth? Sometimes it's a shocking loss that will wake us up. For me, turning 50 was a a wake-up wake up call. I spent my 50th birthday at the crematorium. Somebody dear to me had died. It was, I, I thought it was a great way to spend my 50th birthday, actually. Just a real wake-up. It's like, oh, this life. I thought I wouldn't die. <laughs> Isn't that funny how we all think that when we're younger? Every year it becomes just a little bit more obvious that it's true. There is a story I read. Uh, I can't remember who the teacher was, but it was a teacher who took her teenage children to see the Karmapa. So they had an audience with them. And the first thing he says to them They were like 15 and 16 years old. The first thing he says to them, you know someday you're going to die and the only thing you'll be able to take with you is your state of mind. He was trying to shock them into spiritual urgency. What a great way to open a conversation. Another way we can strengthen this quality of investigation is through inquiry. For some people, this is helpful. Inquiry meaning dropping a question that helps us to look more deeply. Maybe as simple as, what is this? Or what's happening? Who's looking? And the trick with these questions, again, is that they direct us to looking at moment-to-moment experience rather than that they encourage us to start thinking about the answer to the question. So they have to be used skillfully again. We don't want them to become analytical, or at least not an insight practice. Maybe other traditions might have a little more room, latitude on that. But in insight practice, we really want to anchor our attention in the moment-to-moment experience. As this factor of investigation deepens, we 
become less interested in the content of our minds, less interested in the stories of our minds, and more interested in process. So for example, if fear arises, we, we begin to be less interested in the specific story of this fear and why I'm fearful and, and uh, what the, the, the story is, and more interested in fear as a process, as a phenomena. So seeing it arise, how does it manifest? How does it change? What is its nature? Seeing that it's impermanent seeing that it's not so personal, that it arises due to causes and conditions, passes away when causes and conditions change, we become more interested in that kind of investigation. Investigation into, you could say, the nature of reality or the nature of phenomena. And this is the kind of investigation that leads to freedom. It's not to say that there may not be times when understanding some story of fear is useful. Yet in insight practice, that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the nature of fear, for example, the nature of a pain in the knee. All of this investigation uh, arouses energy leading into the next bojanga of effort or energy. Those are the two most common uh, Pali translations of virya. Other translations are persistence, courage, vigor. So you can see there's a lot of flavors to this quality. How do we know that it's present? Well, there's a sense of strength or exertion or endurance, a not shrinking back, a not flagging, a uh, uh, perseverance. This path takes both more and less energy than we thought. We can be startled in our practice by the tenaciousness of our conditioning, of old patterns of mind, of restlessness, of, of uh, the strength of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it takes incredible perseverance and intentionality. It's a lifelong path or lives-long path. Maybe originally we hoped it'd only be a few months. But it also takes less effort than we may think. We may initially think that that skillful effort is some kind of forcing of the heart and mind. Most of us start there, controlling or forcing the heart and mind. But then we see that too much effort in that way just creates turbulence In some ways, too much effort, we overshoot the present moment. We don't actually, we can't see clearly what's happening because of the turbulence of the striving or the 
efforting. So we need a certain amount of surrender and trust and relaxation to the effort. How do we know that effort, uh, our effort, our energy is absent? I think most of us can figure this out. We feel lazy. We want to coast. We'd like to sleep. After 15 minutes of meditation practice, we're not interested. We just want to get up and go take a nap. A novice once asked Ajahn Chah for advice for those new to meditation. And Ajahn Chah said, it's the same as for those who have meditated a long time. And what was the advice? Just keep at it. Perhaps that's the heart of effort or energy. Just keep at it. There's a Story, one of my favorite effort stories is from Charlotte Joko Beck, the Zen teacher who passed away a little while ago. Many years ago, I was a piano major at Oberlin Conservatory. I was a very good student, not outstanding, but very good. And I very much wanted to study with one teacher who was undoubtedly the best. He'd take ordinary students and turn them into fabulous pianists. Finally, I got my chance to study with the teacher. When I went in for my lesson, I found that he taught with two pianos. He didn't even say hello. He just sat down at his piano and played five notes, and then he said, you do it. I was supposed to play it just the way he played it. I played it, and he said, no. He played it again, and I played it again. Again, he said, no. Well, we had an hour of that, and each time he said, no. In the next three months, I played about three measures, perhaps half a minute of music. Now, I had thought I was pretty good. I'd played soloist with a little symphony orchestra. Yet we did this for three months, and I cried most of those three months. He had all the marks of a real teacher, that tremendous drive and determination to make his students see. That's why he was so good. And at the end of three months, one day he said, good. Kind of reminds me of uh, doing retreats with the Sayadaws, the Burmese Sayadaws. <laughs> wow, that's, that's perseverance, no? Three months of no, no, no. And she kept going. He was trying to get her to see deeply or to hear deeply. Same thing we're doing in our practice. One thing that might help us with uh, skillful effort might be thinking of effort coming from the heart rather than the mind. I'm guessing that a lot of her effort did come from the heart. It came from passion. Maybe our effort can come from our passion for the truth, our love for the truth. Sometimes when it comes from the mind, it might get too caught up with striving and expectation and willfulness. And when it comes from the heart, we can tap into 
our deep love of the truth. And that energy we can get from that can help us persevere through all the ups and downs. We often talk about, uh, or we often notice in practice that there's a move from, in our earlier practice, of more conscious effort. And as the practice begins to roll along, um, more relaxation and effortlessness. But we should be careful to not assume that that's a linear progression and that we get caught in effortlessness. We can just as we can get caught in effort. Last January, I sat a retreat in Burma. There's a retreat every January for students in um, Upper Burma, Chaswa Monastery. And um, last year I sat the, the, the retreat there. There's a, the retreat has a Burmese Sayadaw, Sayadu Lakana, and then a couple of Western teachers that's a wonderful combination, and I have helped out a couple of other years as um, one of the teachers, the Western teachers. So this year, I was going to sit with the Saida. I felt a little bit of pressure to um, to produce a fairly good practice, as uh, I'd been uh, assisting him in prior retreats, and I also felt I was representing the team in this uh, undertaking this retreat. I worked my butt off, lots of effort, and it was really helpful for my practice. Strict Mahasi Sayadaw kind of practice, noting moment to moment, continuity, all of that. It was very satisfying to make that much effort. I also ordained that year I um, was a nun for the period of the retreat and cut off all my hair. That was a stretch, too. That was great. I think one of the ways that we uh, can strengthen effort is through stretching. Stretching a bit beyond our comfort zone. So the ordaining, uh, chopping off all the hair, that was stretching, especially for a woman, I think. Very energizing for my practice, very helpful. At a certain point in our practice, we start to think that comfort maybe is a little boring. We're more interested in stretching and, and um, stretching the capacity of heart and mind through challenges, through taking on challenges. Many years ago, I, I, I went to Burma originally to practice. Not, you, don't, you don't all have to go to Burma, don't worry. But I went to Burma personally for me, because I felt that practice was too comfortable for me in this country. It was too easy. And I wanted that stretching. I got it. It was hard. And again, it was very energizing. Other other ways to raise energy... We can reflect on uh, 
how fortunate we are in our circumstances and how rare it is to be this fortunate. I think of it as this lifetime. Perhaps you don't uh, think in the terms of lifetimes, but wow, all of us here, we got, we got a pretty good deal this lifetime. And to have the opportunity to come to a place like this and to practice the Dharma, really precious. Sometimes I reflect that I don't know what the next lifetime is going to be like, and uh, since this one is set up pretty well to, to take advantage of it, Sometimes if the effort or energy is flagging, we can contemplate the benefits that we've received from the Dhamma. Increase our faith by by remembering what we've learned and how it's been helpful so that it gives us energy to, to keep going even during the times that seem kind of rough. We can reflect on Dharma practitioners who've inspired us. There's many stories in the sutras, many um, examples of incredible effort. One of my favorites is um, Patachara, one of the nuns um, at the time of the Buddha, and had a very difficult life. Wound up being a nun after losing her entire family and various dire circumstances and she practiced for years and years and then here's her enlightenment poem when they plow their fields and sow seeds in the earth when they care for their wives and children young brahmins find riches but I've done everything right and followed the rule of my teacher I'm not lazy or proud Why haven't I found peace? Bathing my feet, I watched the bathwater spill down the slope. I concentrated my mind the way you train a good horse. Then I took a lamp and went into my cell, checked the bed, and sat down on it. I took a needle and pushed the wick down. When the lamp went out, my mind was freed. You get the sense from this poem that she persevered for a long time. It's just that one sentence, why haven't I found peace? It's probably a question we've asked ourselves at times. And yet she keeps going. And there's this very close mindfulness, not just while she's sitting or doing formal practice, but as she's bathing her feet and going to the bed, this continuity of mindfulness. Lots of energy and effort. Inspiring. Let's just say a couple more words about stretching our comfort zones as a way to uh, explore skillful effort. So, Perhaps finding ways that that make sense for us, that help us stretch. It may be sitting a little longer, not getting up at the first sign of boredom or or discomfort, but sitting a little longer. 
or adding in continuity. We've talked about that. And then as we do stretch, we, we look to see if it was useful. And this is really the exploration of skillful effort is we, we notice the kind of effort we make and then we see, is it skillful or is it not skillful? What were the results of the kind of effort I made? Was it helpful? If it is, great, we do more of it. If it wasn't helpful, we adjust. So then through this perseverance and courage and effort, we, we stretch our limits, and this helps, to, um, helps us to gain confidence and trust in our ability to connect with life, to connect with the truth. And it leads then to a deep and simple joy in presence itself, in the truth. And this leads to the next factor of awakening joyous interest or piti, rapture. So with rapture or piti, there's a sense of um, active delight in what's happening or in the present moment or in presence. It's this delight in presence, very strong. I I read somewhere, I find this an interesting image, that it's like the joy and delight of little children when they're given candy. They get pretty excited and pretty happy. And this quality, this quality of, of PT, or joyous interest, it refreshes the mind and the heart. It's quite energizing. It can manifest as a certain kind of elation, and the body and the mind feel light, and there's no laziness at all. It's a very energizing factor. And again, we can notice when it's present, it has this characteristic when it's presence, present of, of endearing. It's like all is dear to us. A breath is dear to us. A step is dear to us. And the hindrances, usually when this quality is strong, the hindrances are somewhat at bay and we're relaxing more into the moment-by-moment moment experience. So this kind of delight and joy doesn't have the same sense of making effort. It's usually much more relaxed. It's, uh, it uh, arises out of the, all the effort we've made. And there's this beautiful sense of, you could say, being in the flow of arising and passing away, of phenomena arising and passing away. I think perhaps... A lot of us can remember the first time that we've had this taste of rapture in meditation. I remember for me, it was my first uh, three-month course. And I was washing dishes. I was washing pot washing at the, at the sink. And it was snowy outside. And, um, well, it had been snowing. It was sunny, sun on the snow. And I just had this moment, our moments of such joy, just being present. I remember I was crying, tears of joy. It wasn't about what was happening. It was about 
a mind uh, relatively free of hindrances and um, just right in the moment. So as we deepen our mindfulness and presence, we open up to this joy that comes from an active engagement with life. In the sutras, they talk about five traditional kinds of joy, or of piti. Minor happiness from hair-raising, Goosebumps and hair raising, we all know that. And, and then PT like flashes of lightning and then PT like showers breaking over the body. And um, then there's one called uplifting happiness, which is said to be so powerful it can levitate the body and make it spring into the air. You can take that one as you'd like. Pervading happiness that bliss fills the whole body like a flood fills a cavern. Sometimes it's not quite so physical, however. uh, You don't have to be able to levitate to um, practice, so don't worry about that. These manifestations aren't exactly necessary. You don't have to go looking for them and wondering why you haven't perhaps experienced them. It's great, however, to remember that uh, we can experience so much joy on the path. How do we notice its absence, the absence of this factor of awakening? Perhaps our meditation has gotten a bit too tedious. Perhaps we've gotten um, a little too serious. Perhaps we're taking what arises too seriously. We've forgotten how to refresh the mind, that it needs refreshment sometimes. Here's a poem from Hafiz, the Sufi mystic. Uh, It does have the God word in it, so I hope you can just bear with that. What is the difference between your experience of existence and that of a saint? The saint knows that the spiritual path is a sublime chess game with God and that the beloved has just made such a fantastic move that the saint is now continually tripping over joy and bursting out in laughter and saying, I surrender. Whereas, my dear, I am afraid you still think you have a thousand serious moves. That's a pity poem. (laughs) And we have to be careful if we get uh, lost in thinking that we have a thousand serious moves and, and um, how can we bring in uh, a sense of joy and um, this delight that refreshes the, the mind and the heart. One of the traditional uh, ways to do this is to reflect on the attributes, the wonderful attributes of the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha that might um, uh, 
be helpful for some of us. Another traditional one that I find very interesting that came from the commentaries is um, to recollect our own good sila and to recollect our own generosity and kindness. So we can get a sense of joy from uh, our commitment to non-harming. And we can get a sense of joy from our acts of generosity and kindness. Other ways that we might uh, strengthen the the quality of PTR, joyous interest, is through certain reflections at the beginning of our sittings that um, bring this up for us. For some people, it might be some chanting, chanting of... um, or the, the chanting of the Metta Sutra. For some people, that might bring that quality of joy. Or a reflection on gratitude. Gratitude's a very uplifting uh, reflection that can uh, bring that sense of refreshment to the heart and mind. I find that uh, noticing beauty can be a great way to bring up joyous interest just the little beauties of our daily lives. The snow on the ground is so beautiful sometimes. I was talking the other day about the snow falling, just so beautiful. Or the smell on a day like today, the smell of the leaves. You can smell more when it's this warm and uh, it's refreshing, that connection with nature, for many of us, a connection with nature can really be the catalyst for for this kind of joy to arise. Kempo Rinpoche was asked to tell a story about the many three-year retreats that he'd done. And he said two sentences about the happiness he felt one time watching the sunrise. Sometimes I think of um, natural beauty as a portal to joy. I was remembering a trip I took one time with my partner to Banff and Jasper uh, Parks in Canada. and We hiked up a mountain and looked across the the valley to this glacier on the other side. And and the experience of that, just the majesty and awe of that glacier just triggered so much joy and awe in the mind and heart. Sometimes it's something that large and sometimes it's just the sound of a bird calling. So what what helps cultivate joy in our lives so that we have this um, refreshed heart and mind to do the practice? to keep going in the times that are hard, challenging. One time many years ago in my practice, I was going through a period where practice felt somewhat dry. 
There wasn't a lot of joy, and I joined a gospel choir. It was great, really helpful for my practice. Gospel singing, great joy. So what is the passion that, that, that uh, brings us into the flow, the flow of life? I actually get a lot of um, joy these days from writing Dharma talks. I love to write Dharma talks and contemplate the Dharma in that way. It really brings up this, that sense of joyous interest and connection. The challenge with PT is uh, that it doesn't get out of balance if we become attached to to PT, to either these physical, wonderful physical feelings or the, the, the delight in the mind. If we become attached, it's, it's no longer so helpful. We start to meditate in order to feel PT rather than meditate in order to connect with the truth. And in that case, it's, it's called a corruption of insight and um, it can uh, stall our practice out. So we have to take care of it and note it and be mindful of it as an arising experience and as everything, as the truth is of everything, it arises and passes away. So if we find that our meditation is dull or flagging or bored, uh, we may want to look at strengthen, strengthening one of these three energizing factors, strengthening the quality of investigation or strengthening effort or strengthening mm, joy, joyous interest in our practice. And that way we can keep our practice balanced and uh, keep ourselves on the, the road to freedom, on the uh, path of awakening, not get... Uh, tripping off the sides of the path, but steady, steady on the path with the, the right balance of um, these factors. I would like to end with a poem that for me seems to touch on a number of the themes that we talked about tonight on spiritual urgency and on delight and joy and on... Um, investigation. It's by Mary Oliver. It's called When Death Comes. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the old shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility, and I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular and each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence, and each body a lion of courage and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, 
All my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.